0: Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast
1: this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. This week, we launch into the first of a four-part podcast series on queer activisms, in which we take a deep dive into selected themes and issues that reverberate through past and present queer life. Today, our focus is on queer spaces and queer performance. And to introduce it, I'm handing over to my history workshop colleague, Laura Forster.
2: Today, we're talking about uh, queer spaces and queer performance. So this will, of course, be a a conversation about queer joy and, and queer community and the vitality of those things. Uh, but it will also be a discussion about precarity and marginalization and dispossession. To that end, I'm joined by three guests who are all engaged uh, in one form or another uh, in a the, in the glorious struggle to uh, perpetuate and promote queer art, queer performance and queer spaces. So I'm delighted to introduce Tim Uther, who's a member of RAISE Collective and RAISE is a charity established to support develop and nurture queer performance in the UK. Uh, the organisation was established in response to queer spaces being raised um, through the threats and closures of many queer performance spaces in London and elsewhere in the UK, such as the Black Cap in Camden and Madame Jojo's in Soho. We're also joined by Shea. Shea Shea is a half Irish, half Japanese, non-binary nightlife producer, drag artist, writer, and director working to empower London's queer community through entertainment and education and they are dedicated to raising marginalized voices, creating platforms for diverse representation and educating children and families. Shea is also one of the founders of the Pan-Asian Cabaret Collective, The Bit and Peach, uh, whose mission is to empower the queer Asian community. And finally, we have Dr. Fiona Anderson, who's a senior lecturer in art history at Newcastle University. And Fiona's work explores LGBTQ social and sexual cultures and art from the 1970s to the present with a particular interest in queer community building practices and the politics of urban space in the USA and the UK. Fiona is the author of Cruising the Dead River, which examines the erotic and political roles that New York's post-industrial landscape played um, for queer communities in the city. So uh, welcome all three of you, and thank you very, very much for being a part of this discussion today. So I think, well, I wanna start really, I suppose, with kind of, maybe maybe it's a basic question, maybe it's not. Um, And that is, you know, what is queer performance? Um, What does it celebrate and, and where does it take place? And I suppose then, you know, so what what does it mean to you in a professional or a personal capacity or or both? So maybe we'll start with you, uh, Shay, as a as a queer performer yourself.
3: You know, you you say that it's a basic question and at first it feels like it would be a basic question and a basic answer. But as I try to answer it, I realize that it's more complex than 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 it sounds right off the bat. You could say queer performance is any performance done by queer people, which I would argue is true, that if a queer person is making performance, then it is queer performance. But I don't think necessarily that all queer performance is entirely performed by people that identify as LGBTQIA+. I think there are quote unquote heterosexual people. I think they might exist, um, who do do queer performance because queer performance, much like queer people exist at like the fringe, the edges outside of the norm of what is considered to be acceptable, normal, commercial. So kind of existing outside those confines within society is kind of the way queer people have to exist and queer art exists kind of in the same way. And a lot of the time, queer art and queer people have to fight for their space, make noise and be loud to make their own platforms, or convince establishments that maybe are a little bit more old-fashioned or traditional, that queer art and queer people have a space, deserve platforms, that that representation matters. So inherently queer performers and queer performance is political in itself. Like the existence of LGBTQIA plus people is still politicized in the UK and around the world. And the performance that is associated, the, the parallel to that is also political in itself. So, you know, in essence, queer performance celebrates, I would say, the more basic answer is queer culture, queer people. But it's also just I would argue sometimes queer performance celebrates any sort of counter culture or subversion of what is the norm. A lot of performers in queer performance deal with issues like identity and mental health and trauma and all these things that exist. And, and I, I don't know if I would say people celebrate those things, but there is a way to come together around possibly triggering topics. And come together to learn, to heal, make a cathartic experience for the performers, for the audience. So there's a lot of community aspect to queer performance, I think. I will say this is all coming from my personal perspective. And community for me is very, very, very important. Um, And so if if I were to answer it, I think I would answer that question as I just did, which was all over the place. But I feel good about it.
2: Well, I mean, thanks, Shay. You, you, you've ruined the podcast because all of those things are coming up later. <laughs> no, it's uh, perfect. We're going to revisit a lot of that, thinking about, uh, you know, the queer as political, thinking about, um, you know, this idea of queer as a subculture. So yeah, it's really great to kick us off. And I think you're right that uh, queer performance isn't one thing but that it certainly in some way or another celebrates queerness, whatever that might mean to different people uh, in different places. So uh, Fiona or Tim, do you, how, did you, how would you maybe respond to some of what Shay said or, or your own thoughts about that kind of idea of what is queer art, queer performance?
4: So when we were setting up uh, the Raise Collective, we had to go through, because uh, we set it up as a, a charity, we had to go through a process of getting it registered with the charity commission. And so we then had to go through uh, this kind of both internal and collaborative process with the uh, Charity Commission to define who we were supporting and uh, what we were supporting. And actually, that turned out to be extremely difficult, as Shay Shay has described. And so we, I suppose, reflected both of those things in the reason that we're set up. And it says in our objects, which are the things that the charity is supposed to do, that uh, queer performance is performance undertaken by LGBTQI plus people, which is the first thing that Shay said, which is kind of a cop out, but it is also true. It's the easiest way of defining it. But then also in recognition that there are other people whose performance is queer or they're queering the space that they're in, uh, who might not necessarily identify in exactly the same way or who are part of the community as an ally, but might not be an LGBTQI plus person. Um, or, indeed, who might enjoy that kind of um, uh, countercultural or alternative cultural-type environment. Um, And so we also said that it also includes shows that contain LGBTQI plus themes, content, or context. But then you end up in this murky area, like who gets to decide these things? And there's a very famous um, definition of pornography, which is that it's extremely easy to identify and very difficult to define. And if you think about that for a couple of minutes, that's definitely true. And I think queer performance certainly falls into that category where actually, if you try and describe what it is about it that makes it queer, it's extremely difficult to do that. But if you take a queer person into a queer space with queer performance going on, they immediately feel at home and they understand what's going on. And if you bring someone who um, has never engaged with queer culture and doesn't know what that's about, and you put them in the same place, often it might make them feel quite uncomfortable. And that's sometimes where you end up with these kind of very challenging audience members who might be disruptive or difficult inside a performance space. And that's the kind of thing that's going on there where they've recognized that this is different than what they're used to. And it's outside of their comfort zone. And they're rebelling against that because they're used to everything being nice and easy and smooth for their lives. Whereas Queer spaces are those spaces where the other is no longer other because we've made them our own. I think.
2: I think it's true. You kind of, you know, when you see it, you know, when you're in it, you know, you feel it, um, and there's something that's undefinable about that and that's you know I guess partly that comes from you know where queer comes from. I'm thinking of queer theory and you know it, it doesn't it's not defined necessarily by an identity but it's defined by saying right, we refuse particular certain identities or certain labels so it's it's beyond uh, definition perhaps so um yeah I think that's that's really a really useful way of thinking about it I don't know about uh, Fiona if this these kind of definitions resonate with the types of uh, queer art that you've looked at or the spaces in which this takes place do you think there's something a particular to the spaces of queer performance? Or is that just, you know, where the queer performance is happening that is then a queer space?
0: Yeah, so I think both Shay and Tim have raised really interesting points in trying to get to grips with what makes a performance queer. And I think, you know, you've both acknowledged and addressed that it probably is more than performance that's undertaken by people who identify as LGBTQI+. And we can all understand that. But then if we understand that, well, what, what does it mean? I, I think a lot about the writer Jennifer Doyle wrote this really great essay called Queer Wallpaper. And in it, she says that she knows that queer art is more than art by, as she puts it, gay men and lesbians. But what is that more? Where where do we we go? And and she says that it's a lot about how we look at and consume art and, and, and culture and performance. And so it's a lot about for me, I think reading and looking between the lines sometimes. So we might find um, elements of, of queer performance as we read between the lines of popular culture that doesn't seem to address queer audiences. But it's also, and Jennifer Doll uses this example of these uh, prints, this Andy Warhol series, Sex Parts, which draws from homoerotic pornography in the 70s that hangs in her local uh, queer bar. And she kind of says, well, that's queer art to me, that's queer performance, because she felt that there's something about it being displayed there where it's kind of understood in it, queer life and like it's kind of richness and fullness. And also that particular queer space becomes somewhere that the kinds of stories about artists, queer lives and queer identities that tend to be obscured in different ways through museum and gallery presentations and in a lot of art history and other histories. Um, can be celebrated and not just presented as queer but sustained as well. I think that's, whenever I talk about queer community, I always think it's so important to think about not just building it, how do we sustain it as well? And we do that through the stories that we tell about queer spaces from the past and this informs what we're able to do in and, and with queer spaces in the present. I really
2: like that idea that then that queer spaces are important because that's where queer art um, can be made, performed, and consumed, sort of on its own terms, not like as part of it, you know a kind of institution or, a sh- or another space that feels like it's you know trying to label this this queer thing in a particular way. And actually, you know that thing when you feel it when you're in it, as we've said, because because it feels like it allows that queerness to to speak out, to sort of be visible in, in, in on its own terms in a particular way. Okay, so if we've kind of thought a little bit more about what is queer performance and where it might take place and the importance of of that, maybe it feels a bit grim to kind of go so quickly to thinking a bit about how those things are threatened. But I think it's quite important for us to start thinking about that um, before we maybe um, return to some of the themes of how and why queer art and performance is so powerful. So I wanted to ask all of you a little bit about your experiences of the the ways in which um, queer spaces both formal and informal ones, are often particularly vulnerable to um, the forces of gentrification and the types of precarity that queer spaces and queer people often often encounter. I mean, in 2016, the the UCL Urban Laboratory, in collaboration with the Queer Spaces Network and with RAISE Collective, of which Tim is a part, undertook a project to catalog and map um, LGBTQ plus nightlife in London from 1986 to the present. And the consequent report um, evidenced for the first time um, the recent intensity of closures among London's queer nightlife spaces, um, with significant impacts on the most long-standing and community-valued venues. And the data from that is, is really quite sobering. Since 2006, uh, the number of queer venues in London has fallen from 125 to 53, a net loss of 58% of venues. And the report also highlighted that spaces catering to women and to queer people of colour have been disproportionately vulnerable to closure. So uh, I think to to return to you, Fiona, like you've written quite a lot about how processes of um, gentrification um, affected queer communities in New York in the 1970s. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about where and how sort of queer sexual cultures and city spaces intersect And, and then what you see then as the activist in imperatives behind LGBTQ art making in the context of this constant threat of, of dispossession. So a little bit about the history of that.
0: Yeah, so uh, my book, Cruising the Dead River, explores the ways in which the abandoned piers warehouses on uh, Manhattan's waterfront in the late 1970s, so kind of in the like the period immediately prior to the AIDS epidemic, um, how they were appropriated, made use of by queer people for sex, shelter, sex work. And they're interesting spaces to think of as queer spaces because they, um, you know, they're very distinct from bars. Like the, it's like a culture that spilled out from gay bars, uh, many of which were, um, they were reusing former longshoremen saloons and um, like shops that were related to the shipping uh, industry that kind of closed in the 50s and 60s. And men, generally sort of men wandered out to the water and sometimes it was because they wanted to uh, keep the party going and kind of they acted like this extended dark room. But they also really operated as one of the things I really addressed in my work was that this sort of post-Stonewall narrative that kind of presents post-1969 in in New York as uh, kind of like golden period for uh, queer nightlife is is really inaccurate and that actually raids racism in in these bars was en- endemic throughout this period so these kind of spaces that were they were totally temporary they were literally collapsing into the water that they perform this extremely important role as informal queer spaces because they facilitated supported community without the need to pay for an entry fee or be a member or dress in a particular way identify in a particular way so I became really interested in how like, what traces of those spaces remain and how we kind of think about them in relationship to how we undertake this like labor of queer preservation because I think that's such an issue in these kind of queer spaces that we're talking about how are they how are they preserved I mean uh, sort of more recently I've written about uh, a series that the artist Prem Sahib did where they were working at like documenting chariots and these like bathhouses in London as they closed turned into uh, luxury hotels as everyone is probably familiar with um, but this is all happening at the same time as the partial decriminalization of sex between men in, in England and Wales is being memorialized by big institutions like the Tate the British Library so you have these big memorializing events of, of particular like queer modes of, of being happening in, in one sense and then this gentrification closure of all of these spaces that you talked about before it's happening at exactly the same time but one is really visible and one is not.
2: Yes I mean I think it's something we're going to come back to is idea of like in the process of um, this increased visibility on the one hand what's gained and what's and what's lost but I also really like that that your definition then and maybe that's something you know, actually more fundamental, this idea of queer spaces is like the sort of spaces of making do. Um And it reminds me actually, in my own historical work, you know, I, I work on um radical political groups in the, in the 19th century in, in Britain, and a lot of the radicals in the early 19th century, you know, are excluded from spaces from official meeting rooms, excluded from public squares, they, they, you know, they're denied the right to meet. So they create all these kind of spaces of making do if that's out on moorlands, lands, um, if that's by... know all deciding to meet at the same pub at the same time and there's a real kind of radical um energy there of like we've been excluded from these spaces so we're just gonna we'll we'll find a way that you cannot you can't contain that that sort of energy and there's something really like radical and quite um to me anyway quite inspiring about that idea of um you know queer spaces will be made they will be made and sustained by queer people wherever that may be Nonetheless, that being said, that doesn't justify the way in which formal queer spaces um, are constantly you know, under threat. Part of the reason that queer people have to make do is because they're so often dispossessed of space within which to gather and to create community and to create performance. Um, so, I mean, Tim, you were involved with some of that um, UCL Queer Spaces project. So I wondered if you could you know, say a, a little bit more about that and, and perhaps maybe why a project like that was important or useful for the work that, that Ray's Collective is doing.
4: It all came out of the last great social crisis that happened that feels like a different planet, a different universe ago now. But towards the kind of mid uh, 2000s, there was this really like thriving queer, particularly queer club culture in London, but queer culture in London, uh, in central London in particular, in general, you know, Soho hadn't completely died out yet. Lots of stuff had moved. From Vauxhall back into central London and the East London scene was on the ascendant and when I first uh, moved to London around that time I could go out five, six nights a week to excellent club nights with excellent people um, and you know there was daytime queer spaces as well and One of the things that happened was that um, after the financial crisis of 2008 and the huge economic contraction that happened, um, the massive job losses, and particularly, I think, the government's austerity program, um, everything kind of closed down. And there was two effects of that. The first thing was that the kind of extravagance of... Um, some of the club culture and queer culture that was happening at that time seemed very inappropriate all of a sudden, you know. Um, me and my, my gang of friends used to get dressed up and get the tube into Soho in order to be able to go out in some pretty um, uh, wild outfits. And, you know, just doing that in the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis suddenly felt very inappropriate when everyone was having a really difficult time. So lots of that stuff died out. And then on top of that, um, I think that there was these just big economic changes where the rampant capitalism that has created central London in what it is today, um, the the world's gigantic pool of money was looking for a safe place to go and central London property is a safe place to go. So in the aftermath of the financial crisis, property prices in central London, both rents and values, just astronomically increased, like it really increased. Between 2008 and 2014, the rate of property price in central London was crazy, really insane. Um, and there was this huge like panic in central London where stuff was becoming unaffordable. And as a result of that, what you saw was um, property developers moving in to buy up places that had queer spaces in it and had queer spaces in for a long time. So it's difficult to say why all of these spaces closed down. Um, but from the UCL research we found that a lot of them were closed down for um, you know urban redevelopment projects and a really good example of that is uh, Madame Jojo's that has now been uh, put into this like fancy kind of shopping zone in Soho as part of this kind of death of Soho um, effect and obviously the Royal Vauxhall Tavern which is probably the oldest uh, continuous queer space in London was bought out by this um, property company that had been trying to convert it into something else for a long time and I can a bit more about the campaign about that later but um I'll, i'll leave that for a minute um and so it really felt like there was this huge cultural burst in the mid to late 2000s and then following that everything closed and you really felt it just like a bar every few months and a bar every few months and once it really started to take down those spaces that had been there for 10 20 30 50 years so like the rvt and the black cap and these kind of places um you suddenly like, hold on, these are the permanent places. These aren't the temporary places that we make our own. These aren't the DIY spaces. These are the DIY spaces of 50 years ago that we own now. Like we have created our culture in these spaces and these are essential to the queer community of London. And they were going, and that was a real panic. And so um, myself with a group of other performers and activists set up, the RAISE Collective um, and the Queer Spaces Network to try and bring together lots of these individual campaigns to save these spaces, um, to try and kind of solidify our efforts. And um, we did lots of work with the GLA, so the Mayor of London's office uh, at the time, uh, and also through the research that we did and um, tried to support these spaces. I think it's interesting now because As we sit here in the bleakest moment for culture and arts and culture of all time, really, it's difficult to imagine another context in which, particularly the queer performance community, has been so completely devastated, really, yeah. Um, And for me, looking in a slightly kind of medium term, the queer culture and the queer performance community of London is going to be here when this is all finished. We're still going to be in central London. We're still going to be in East London. And we're still going to go out and we're still going to have places to go because that's an intrinsic part of the queer culture. What might not be there is a lot of people who go back into offices in central London and a lot of people who um, will go shopping in central London. A lot of that stuff might not come back for a lot longer because people have moved or got used to being at home and offices will still be in as not safe and they'd rather stay at home so there might be a small window of opportunity for um, us to reclaim some queer space in central london or east london because as as you were saying you know queerness and queer spacing and queering space is often a very diy project so there's been some good examples of that recently particularly lime wharf in east london uh run by the amazing tam fiber uh, and also the Chateau in South London, yeah, where um, groups of people turned up and said, this is our space, and quid it for a period of time. But lots of those spaces are temporary, and as, although you want them to become permanent, uh, you know, factors mean that they don't. So there might be a window of opportunity at the at the end of all of this where we can reclaim some space, and I don't think that would have happened if economic forces had continued in the same way.
2: Wow, well, I mean, I, I really want to, yeah, definitely come back to that and thinking about... In that sense of possibility that you know COVID for all the kind of havoc and kind of destruction that it sort of wreaked, that there could be this real opportunity to kind of queer those spaces that for so long were completely subsumed within that sort of central London and other part, other cities in the UK. You kind know, of price wars for for business space and office space, etc. That might now, um, yeah, yeah, you're quite right in saying might might now feel suddenly you know more up for grabs again, which would be really exciting. Um, Shay, I wanted to ask you about this because not only um, uh, a performer yourself but you know you organized uh, tons of queer nights um, and and different types of queer programs so I wonder you know what your experiences of trying to do that work with precisely these venues that are often under threat and performers uh, whose livelihoods are often extremely precarious um, as a result of that Um so yeah, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your your experience of that, and you know, maybe also in light of, of course, you know, COVID and what that has meant, uh, as Tim said, for for queer performance.
3: I think there's a very difficult relationship between queer people and gentrification because I think we are unfortunately part of the problem of gentrification. I think often queer people are are willing to and embrace going into an area that's deemed like less desirable. I say that with quotes. Um, Like when I first came to London in 2014, like shortage had already done its turn. It was already becoming hip. And within the first year that I was here, uh, the Georgian dragon and the joiners arms both closed. And those places, had been there forever. And the queer people had been going to shortage when it was considered dangerous. And I think once once queer people start going somewhere and they make it cool and fun because that's what we do, that's the whole point. Like we, we have to celebrate and make our events fun and joyous because so much of our lives outside of nightlife don't feel that way. So once we start having fun and heterosexual cisgender people start seeing us having fun, First, our allies come with us, but then they start bringing their friends or other people see them and then they start coming to the area. And and like, it's a trend. It's a trend. We set these trends in these areas and then more and more people see, oh, it's not as undesirable as I thought it was. Like I think about, The way Dolson is rapidly changing and like Dolson Superstore has been there for 11 years now when Dolson was very different, but now literally across from Dolson Superstore, which used to be the worst Tesco in London is now the like a fancy hotel like a boutique hotel. And you know that, that that hotel, it's like a shortage house, a Soho house hotel, it's one of those. Like the type of people that are will be going there are completely different from the demographic that have historically lived in Dulston. And so that is like a really obvious switch and change. Uh, the Glory is also in Hagerston, which, which is also on its route to changing. All these high rises of apartments are going up that are luxury apartments. And so it's this difficult thing where queer spaces typically will go somewhere because they can afford it. That's not necessarily the most glamorous place to be, but then by moving there, they make it more glamorous because that's what we do. So it's this challenging link of like, we go to these places because we can survive there, but then in turn, sometimes people follow us. I wonder if we need to just like stop telling people where we're going. Queer venues need to be secret. We need to have a, a password on the door. Um, but I'm really excited about what you were saying, Tim. I hadn't thought about property prices and stuff changing and that possibly queer people might be able to take back some spaces. My wonder is, are there gonna be any queer people that can afford to take back these spaces after this time? I know lots of people have been able to make a lot of money during the pandemic, but I, I see that in my head as mostly like, the billionaires like Jeff Bezos and stuff who who have astronomically become more wealthy during this very difficult last year. Because on the ground level in the queer community, this year has, this past year, since we the pandemic kind of began has been extremely challenging for everyone across the board. And that goes for queer people who have had more steady work and also queer people whose work has been completely shattered. Because I think for many, many queer people, that have maybe full-time jobs, typically those jobs aren't necessarily in full queer spaces. Some people obviously work at LGBTQIA plus charities and, and, and companies, but for the most part, people find that solace in queer spaces. Being able to look forward to your night out at the weekend where you can be surrounded by your community is so important and it can fill your internal cup so much and keep you fueled to keep in on taking on the world. I know for me, each time I get to put on a big event and I get to see that people have had a good time together, like the joy that I get from that can last me quite a while. But when we don't get to do it, I have to find joy in other ways. And I can tell you right now, a Zoom room does not give you the same energy that a room full of people does. Um, so, What I've seen from my my colleagues, my peers in the community is just a lot of uncertainty. I think a lot of people's anxieties about the precarity of their careers that had existed already because working in queer nightlife and performance is not steady, it's not stable. This experience has shown people, oh, it's less stable than you thought. It's really, really fragile. And so there have been people that have hustled and worked and made it work. And there've been people that have realized, maybe maybe I need something a little more sustainable financially and queer performance when it comes back can be something that I also do. So it's made a lot of people completely reshape their approach to what they do. I know that retrain, reboot crap was an absolute joke. But on, on <laughs> in people's lives, I think people were already doing that. They weren't going into cyber or whatever, but people were thinking, okay, maybe I need to rethink what parts of my career and my skills could be applied in different ways. I know a lot of people have been kind of reshaping their practice and their work um, and hopefully preparing to come back stronger and bigger and better when we can.
2: Yeah, a lot to um, pick up on there. I think, I mean, it's certainly true, obviously, if we were all in a room together right now, this would be way more fun, you know, it'd be off the chain. Um, instead, here we are on Zoom, um, still very sterile. But uh, on a more serious note, I really think um, uh, the, that what you picked up on there, Shay, about this kind of relationship between queer culture and gentrification and that actually queer culture in some ways can fuel gentrification and then get sort of eaten by it, you know, and I think that's really interesting and something that um, uh, I definitely want to ask Fiona about. But before I do, I want to kind of, I guess, reframe that as part of maybe a broader question as well and think about that relationship that we touched on before about um, relationship between art and performance and activism and and whether, you know, the process of making um, queer art is is always political, and you know, of course, you know this question um, also has me thinking about uh, whether queer culture is or should always be a counterculture. You know, is it always subversive? Um, and obviously, you know, I'm sure we're all aware of RuPaul's Drag Race and Drag Race UK. You know, they've been phenomenally successful, and you know, have certainly kind of mainstreamed queer culture to an extent. But I wanted to ask, what you think that kind of mainstreaming of queer culture means sort of for the future of queer culture and what it means for, for queer spaces you know on, on the one hand uh, mainstream drag makes gender nonconformity and queer sexual identities more visible um, and that's really powerful and really important but then of course on the other hand it often seems that only certain identities you know those perhaps seemed more palatable for a wider audience are made visible and then what does that do to those most marginalized already within the queer community, you know, particularly queer people of color, thinking about trans folk, etc. And in other words, you know, in doing so, like what's gained and what's lost, you know, so does a certain amount of visibility come at the cost of further erasure of those who, who exist in all the kind of many, many multitudes of manifestations of queerness? And also is, is also one of those costs of kind of mainstreaming some of that, the processes of gentrification, you know, and, and the, you know, Fiona, I'm interested to hear your perspective, you know, because th- you've got that really um, occupying that position between um, studying this this kind of phenomena in the UK and in the US. I and mean, I'm thinking about, you know, of course, you've looked at New York a lot. And there we can see, you know, similarly as in London, uh, the, the kind of uh, sort of classic queer sort of subversive spaces being very, very much on the kind of super expensive tourist map by now. And, you know, is that necessarily a bad thing? Are we just being really like annoyed because like, oh God, like we discovered it first. Or is that a genuine concern, you know, that by mainstreaming queer culture in, in certain ways that, that something's lost? Yeah, first of Fiona, but then I want to hear from all of you about this.
0: God, it's broad. Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on all of this and on what Shay was saying before about gentrification and queer people. I don't know which I want to tackle <laughs> first because the drag race point is a big one and I'm probably not the best person to speak to that here. Because I I can't help but wonder, to um, accidentally paraphrase Carrie Bradshaw, is it still queer culture? Because I kind of fell out of love with Drag Race after going to see Bianca del Rio, sorry, I probably shouldn't have named and shamed, somewhere in uh, Newcastle. And it did not feel like a safe queer space to me at all. And I just really wanted to leave. I think what I'm just saying is is it's important to think about homonormativity and homonormative culture. And I think for me, it's really important to ask that question that you did right at the beginning. What is queer performance? And I don't think that it's necessarily it should be or has to be countercultural, but you know, I'm drawing upon like, histories of queer performance by writers like José Esteban Muñoz, who's you know saying this is kind of about a practice of disidentification, that building community when you're marginalised is necessarily sort of disruptive and um, explo- as it explores and kind of treads though that like landscape of marginalisation and and um, as he put it, disidentification. But I don't know whether anyone else wants to come in on that about queer culture as counterculture. I do have things to say about gentrification and and queer spaces, uh, but I wonder if it'd be nice to hear some other thoughts on the queer culture bit.
4: I just have a little thing to say about queer culture as counterculture. And I was lucky enough to be on a panel um, with the amazing name Davis from Babes, who who set up and run, run Babes. Um, at a festival, which seems like a different universe ago, uh, a couple of years ago. And um, we were asked the same question and I gave quite a similar answer to Fiona, where I found it quite difficult to describe. Um, And so I've shamelessly borrowed this name ever since, because it's the best description of this. And now I go into each event that we do or each event that I go to, um, you've got to work out whether it is church, or whether it is school. And church is the experience of queer performance by queer people in a queer space for a queer audience. And you turn up and you're like, oh, yes, this is where I'm meant to be. This is for me. And I love it. And it's great. And it gives you that buzz. But then some other queer events, they're school, right? So they're queer people demonstrating queer culture for an audience who doesn't know about it and doesn't isn't really on board with it, but has come to experience that particular queer culture. And what that can mean is like you're describing when you're in the audience, you're like, oh, hold on a minute. This doesn't make me feel very safe because I'm here with a whole bunch of other people who don't understand what's going on. And usually what's happening is that the performer or the host or whoever is around is trying to corral everybody into understanding the rules of interacting in this space and and making people feel safe and often that's not how it works so when we do as a race collective when we do public facing events like we've done a bunch with the south bank center that is school you're teaching people and you know school often not that fun if you know like what the stuff is about right so we organise that at a school where there's lots of explanation to people and lots of making sure that people are behaving properly and setting the rules. And that ends up not being, uh, you know, as fun as you might want to hope. But then you've got to make sure that when you do queer events for queer people, that's church and everyone needs to get into that spirit and join together and become, you know, one queer humanity experiencing those things. And um, yeah, I think that... That is the difference between, you know, queer culture as counterculture and queer culture being mainstreamed. And if you look at the drag race phenomenon, you know, that started off as queer counterculture. And at the beginning, when you first saw those first series, you were like, this is church. This is amazing. They've put amazing drag queens on TV and this is crazy. But as it's got more and more mainstream, it's becoming school, you know. So like my friends who've never engaged with drag culture before... Um, uh, who I've known for like since childhood and stuff, are suddenly on board with RuPaul's Drag Race now, but they don't understand the context from which it's come and they don't really understand it. So they're learning what drag is through RuPaul. And then this is where it throws up all of these problems where they don't know how limited it is and they don't know how limiting the presentation of it is. Um, But Shei Shei might have something more to say about
3: that. Yeah, I wondered if we would not have to talk about Drag Race, but it is... Big. It's a big moment right now. I know it's gone into season two on the UK TV, and uh, you know it's really picked up some momentum. People are really invested, really watching it. And that being said, the queens that are featured on it, like, are amazing. Some of them are straight from the the depths of the queer scene and really represent what I think of as queer performance as drag. But the program as a whole is very limited, as you were saying. It's a very specific structure of what is, what is deemed worthy and not worthy in drag, what is considered valuable and not valuable, what is good and what is not good. And with drag in the real world, I mean, I have an opinion on what I think is good and bad drag, but so does every single person in that, that is a drag fan or a drag performer. And that doesn't mean that we say like, I can think something's not good, but it doesn't mean that I don't respect it. It's just, okay, that's not good for me. It's good for other people. The problem with drag race is because the judges deem what's good and bad, all your audience who haven't had the experience of going to the spaces and discerning for themselves, they take that on as, okay, this is the rubric. That's how drag should be judged. And you get people that have watched the show going into real spaces and judging the queens on that rubric when, I'm sorry, the, the queens that go on that show now are expected to be at such a high level. And this is not their fault by any means. This is the fault of the program where th- th- they're going in with huge budget outfits, amazingly expensive outfits. A lot of them have a little bit of plump put in their faces just to make them all that more beautiful, ready for TV. Your average drag queen working in a dirty basement does not have that budget. And so it's an unfair rubric. And the problem is it's destroying the drag economy because it's placing so far, what, 20 queens that have been on the show on a level 10 stories higher than everyone else. They are considered so much more valuable, not just a bit more valuable, like 10 times or more. Your average queen that's been on the show can ask for so much money going into a space. And a venue will pay that because they know that they'll bring in an audience. But that means then all the queens that could have been booked for that, maybe 10 queens for that same amount of money, none of them will get it. And so it's making our industry so competitive and disproportionate. That is a that is one of the fears that I have for when we are able to come back. I think a lot of the venues that are going to be very, very focused on being able to get enough people in for viable financial turnover, they're going to look to who's going to bring in the numbers. And, and it is going to be, a lot of the time, the people that have been on television exposed to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the audience. So I get it, but I don't like it.
2: I think that, I mean, that, that's, that really takes us back to Fiona's earlier points about like, what is striking in a lot of cases about queer spaces is this sense of like making do of DIY and that, you know, the drag race obviously really showcase that, which is amazing. It shows how talented these Queens are, but as you say, uh, Shay, in doing so, it means that you actually have to, you erode some of that kind of DIY sort of like grassroots culture a little bit. And in doing so as Fiona talked about in the context of uh, New York and other places that then erodes some of the spaces which have been created for that DIY grassroots culture, because they can't compete anymore. Fiona, I wanted to come back to you before we start to kind of round things up slightly, maybe, if we can.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I suppose I wanted to reflect a bit more on the question of gentrification and queer people coming into areas that might have, I mean, I don't like to use the term like affordable, but, you know, cheaper housing. So uh, there's a few things to say about this. And one is that, you know, this is a, a question that's often like in. People just just talk about it in relation to artists more broadly, you know, uh, not not only queer artists, but and my feeling is often the uh, kind of artists like have to sort of bear the brunt of this because and, and queer people perhaps too because they're often the most visible sign of a process that's been happening in ways that are not visible for some time before that. There's that empty housing or that before prices. There's one interesting cafe that someone might think, oh, actually, this place isn't as bad as I thought it was. I'm going to move in. So those processes, that's capital. Those are things that are not visible. And so often, I think, if queer people moving into those kind of neighbourhoods, artists more broadly, are that the visible sign of something that's been going on for a while. One thing that I wanted to raise, actually, is about uh, Christina Hanhart wrote this really interesting book called Safe Space, which looks at this in an historical context, and looks at how white gay men, for example, moving into neighborhoods in Lower Manhattan in the 70s, buying property, started to become really invested in the safety of the area. And a lot of that played out through like racialized antagonism with people who were already living in these neighborhoods that they were displacing, particularly young people. So I think that's really important to note as well that when you know we think about our relationship to gentrification as, as queer people. How have we facilitated it as well? You know, who are we displacing? And the other thing that I just wanted to raise in relation to queer space and gentrification is, you know, I think it is so fascinating how these terms have become so intertwined because of the experiences that queer people have had in cities like London, San Francisco, New York, and, you know, to go a bit further north, Edinburgh to a certain extent. But at the same time it does often mean that we always talk about the threat to queer spaces in relation to urban areas where gentrification is um underway i live in gateshead um in the northeast of england there's you know there are amazing diy spaces It's a great new radical drag collective but there aren't very many queer spaces at all and so I think it's always important to also think about um, where where are those places where queer spaces have not been able to exist at all you know this happens naturally or understandably because of of people going to cities to find other other queer people and build that community but I do all one of the things that was raised in that UCL report was about Homelessness among LGBTQI+ plus people, like 25% of young homeless people, homeless people under the age of 25, I think, identify as LGBTQ+. That's another factor of, of gentrification. I think the loss of, of dedicated queer spaces, formal and informal, is crucial, crucially important to reflect upon and resist. But also thinking about that we need to take time to think about people who aren't even able to access safe housing
2: yeah i mean i think the 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 question of how uh as as queer people we you know reflect on the need for queer community but the cost of that sometimes and how the queer community is sometimes you know it can be very exclusive we know that queer people of color are disproportionately affected by gentrification but by all of these other types of processes that lead to those kind of sobering statistics that we've just talked about Um, i wanted to see if Shay or tim wanted to respond to any of that um, on a side note, though, Fiona, I just last month moved to Newcastle and I would love to hear more about some of the uh, new radical queer stuff going on. So uh, please. Oh,
0: welcome to the neighbourhood.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Shay or Tim, I don't know if you wanted to reflect on any of the those points that, that Fiona just discussed.
4: Well, I think only to say that, you know, the queer community recognises these problems and it's part of the story that... Um, And this is where the activism comes in, that um, intrinsically the systems and institutions that exist don't understand how these things work. So we all need to come together um, to, you know, agree what the problem is and what the way forward is. And then often we have to do battle with the institutions that are supposed to be helping us out. And... Um, I suppose the best example of this using Fiona's uh, kind of point about queer homelessness is the outside project and uh, Carla and her team have just done a a dumbfoundingly amazing job having recognized this as a massive problem um, firstly set up um, uh, uh, shelters during the winter for queer homeless people uh, on a converted bus that they drove around which is a complete madness. Can you imagine that happening anywhere else? But, you know, that was the solution to the problem at the time. And then have spent years um, sorting out um, a kind of more permanent space, which they which they now have done in a uh, disused space in central London. So, you know, there are opportunities for, for that kind of stuff to happen. But, you know, it takes someone with the sheer force of humanity that Carla has in order to be able to see it through. But those kind of people are ever present in the queer community because we have to help out our family that's how it goes and that is something that a lot of people elsewhere in culture don't understand and so that's how that kind of activism spirit comes through in these kind of things I think as well
2: there's so much more I want to ask you all and I think this is a really fascinating discussion but I am aware that we probably do have to round up at some point Um, so I suppose like sort of by way of doing that I wanted us to and we have already thought about it but think about the future of queer performance of queer spaces of how we might sustain and perpetuate those things as we've just said we're living through not only the the destruction of of queer spaces through uh, the forces of gentrification other types of displacement but also of course with the pandemic you know it's just been devastating and things can feel quite bleak, I think. And, and it makes me, when I think like what's next, it can feel bleak. But, you know, are we in fact actually on the brink of like a, a glorious, beautiful renewal, a queer roaring 20s? What's the future of queer performance? Tim said perhaps this is a moment that parts of kind of city spaces that have been completely sort of off limits for years because of the force of capital, that actually the, the, the COVID pandemic might have created a, a tiny kind of window through which queer people could elbow their way in a little bit and, and get back into some of that. What other visions do you all have maybe for the future of queer spaces?
3: I oscillate between being really realistic, logical, worried, pessimistic, and concerned, and being completely overwhelmed with the excitement and the optimism of what could happen when we're able to do events again. Like <laughs> at this moment, I'm feeling really joy, joyous, and hopeful and excited because I think that the community is going to be so desperate and hungry to be together and to commune and go out to support our venues, to support each other, to watch performance, to cheer and applaud and hug and dance and sweat. And I think, you know, if I were to try to combine both my views of being worried and excited, if, and I hope this is not the case, But if we were to lose more spaces, which I really, really don't want that to happen. If anyone has a lot of money listening, please go fund our queer spaces. I think that queer people will do what they always do and continue to be resilient and find ways, find spaces. There's going to be spaces that are disused, that are, that are up for the taking, whether or not that's to take on more permanently, or at least to take for pop-up events. And queer people will find those spaces and put on events and put on performances. And that really does excite me. I I, I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait to go out and see people. There's so many people that you only get to see out. They're not people that you FaceTime with. They're not people you text with. You might not even have their information, but you see them out and you get to know, oh yes, my comrade in my queer community, hello, greetings. So I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting because I see a bright but unpredictable future ahead. So we, you know, it's nice to hear you say, hear, hear you
4: say that, because You're one of those people that for years I've seen you like once or twice a month out and about all over the place, sometimes more often than that. And then for a year I haven't seen you at all, which is just like a criminal loss in my life that I feel. It's so nice to uh, hang out with you today. Um, uh, I think that, you know, what Raise Collective are doing, what we're doing is we are preparing. We are getting ready for whatever happens next. We are building you know, a network, we are getting funding, we are making sure that whatever happens next, we are ready for it. And I think that there's there's the two kind of tracks of the way out of this, and particularly thinking about preserving uh, queer spaces or accessing queer spaces or taking them over. And there's uh, the boring way and the exciting way. So there's the, the bureaucratic way, and this is the way of, you know, saving uh, the Royal or Tavern by doing planning applications and making cases to the, the council and writing listing uh, applications and, you know, fighting uh, from uh, the kind of planning applications to turn it into flats and making the case for queer spaces and all of that boring stuff where you sit there and you have to do emails and you have to fill out huge forms and you've got people to do research. And then there's the radical way. And this is the way that we need to make sure also happens, which is there is a big empty space and we are gonna go and be in it because no one else is using it and we don't have any of our own space. So I think you've got to fight this on two fronts, you know. It's not likely that someone is going to turn up with a million pounds and buy a building and say this is a queer space, that doesn't really happen. But through bureaucracy preserving the existing spaces and through radicalism accessing the new spaces and ultimately a lot of those spaces that um, uh, became long-standing queer venues started through, you know, informal networks of people taking them over and creating a culture inside of those. And I just think that... There's not much good gonna come out of this pandemic, but I just, in order to get through this, I have to believe that there is gonna be the opportunity out the other side for the queer community to come back together. And it's just that energy that I can feel, like that desperation to be back with everybody. I just have to believe that one of the outcomes of this is gonna be a real resurgence in queer culture and access to queer space.
0: Oh, I loved hearing both of those uh, visions of the future. I think one thing I wanted to say is that, you know, people are really going to need spaces in which to come together with each other in the same space, not in a digital space, because the COVID-19 pandemic has been really traumatic for lots of queer people. Precarity is traumatic, but also thinking about it as, you know, for lots of older queer people or queer people living with HIV, that it, that, it's really has been quite triggering and particularly the way that COVID's been talked about in relation to the ongoing HIV pandemic so I think that queer space is for support and for for dealing together with with that kind of ongoing trauma. Yeah I loved hearing all
2: that and I think you're all absolutely right that on the one hand we're going to need crave desire be you know dreaming of seeing one another of being in the same space Um, I really hope the four of us can hang out in real life <laughs> um, but also you know as Fiona says that's the collective joy we'll also be doing the collective grieving this has been a, a year we've lost thousands of people it's kind of incomprehensible I don't even think any of us have quite kind of grappled with it yet so there'll be a lot of mourning to do a lot of trauma to process um, and the queer community has always shown itself I think to be able to carry hold those two things together you know the joy and the loss and the trauma and like bring those together really beautifully um so that fills me with with courage and, and excitement for the future so thank you uh, fiona Sheshe and tim so much for um talking to me today and I, i'm feeling the queer joy you know just doing it with you so um thank you so much oh uh, yeah very much appreciate it
1: many thanks to tim other shay shay and Fiona Anderson for taking part in this podcast. More information about the Outside Project, the UK's first LGBTQ community shelter and centre, can be found at lgbtioutside.org. And you can learn more about the UCL LGBTQ Nightlife Spaces in London report on the UCL Urban Laboratory Research pages. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.